Well, good morning. We are going to start with a physical illustration of something, so I need three volunteers. So don't be shy. Raise that hand quickly. Come on up. Uh, you want to do some math problems in front of everybody? Come on up. You can come on up. Anybody else? I'll start naming people. I'll start picking them out. Come on up back there. And one more. Yes. I can't quite see who's volunteering. You're going to do math problems. And I know you're saying, like, what kind of monster brings math into church? Uh, but so you get to pick glasses. So stand here. Here's why I need one, two, three. You get to pick a What color do you want? Green. You get green. And what color do you want? Oh, you get red, and then you get purple. So what's going to happen is I'm going to show you a math problem. You will shout out the answer. The screen will have the same math problem on screen, but you guys will shout out the answer. Can you do that? You all right? Glasses on glasses. That is a good look. Imagine all the people with your John Lennon glasses. That's awesome. Okay. You guys ready? Math problem number one. Ready to go. Okay, well, it's tricky. There's, this is a trick. This is a trick question. Okay, you ready? Okay, ready? Okay, go. <laughs> okay, next question. This is tricky. It's very tricky. I'm, I appreciate you being fooled in front of everybody. You, uh, we all appreciate your sacrifice for us and the Lord. Okay, ready? Uh, ready, go. <laughs> okay, so the trick is, the trick, the reality is, the red glasses actually filter out the pink. This is what it looks like. So the red glasses actually filter out the pink lettering. So let's give a hand to our volunteers. Thank you guys for being willing to make, a, make, make yourselves look silly. We appreciate that. So this is a very simple, uh, I'll, I'll need my glasses back. I'm sorry. I know they're cool, but thank you for volunteering. So it's a simple, silly illustration from my world of doing some relationship awareness consulting. But this idea is that our filters, like what we see through, influence our perception of the world around us. Some information gets in through our filters. Our filters block other information out. And how we look at the world through our filters matters a lot. So I'm going to use this idea, this concept of filters, uh, several times this morning, the, the idea of the filters of how we're seeing the world, how we're perceiving reality. The first way that this is meaningful is that we cannot help but read our scriptures through a lens, our modern lens. We have learned a lot of things about the world around us. We have grown in societies and technology. So when we approach the ancient scriptures, it's hard for us to not anachronistically put things on the scriptures that maybe aren't there. So the first thing we need to understand about our filters is that we have to read the scriptures the way the original hearers would have heard them or read them. There's a statement that I learned in seminary that I just love this, um, this concept, this very simple concept of how we approach the scriptures. And that is that the scriptures cannot mean to us what they never meant to the original hearers. So the scriptures were written to people in a time and in a place, and that original meaning to them means something to us as well. Now, we can extract meaning out of that to our current environment. But first, to get at the root of what we're understanding in the Scriptures, we have to see it through the lens as much as we possibly can through the lens of the original hearers, the original uh, receivers of, of the Scriptures. So 
uh, our reading must be through that as much as we can kind of go back in time and understand that. And that takes some work on our part to do that. So understanding that filter, kind of before we look into the book of Proverbs, I want to look at how the Bible starts, the very first words of the Bible, because there's a direct connection with that imagery there and what we're called to understand about wisdom in the Proverbs. And it's all about the filters through which we see the world. So this is Genesis 1, 1 and 2 from the message. First this, God created the heavens and, and, and earth. All you see and all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. And God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. So if you could go back in time to the ancient Near East and communicate to someone from the ancient Near East who was not familiar with the Hebrew God of the Bible, and you read them this and that this is what God is like, this would have been a radically countercultural statement for them. The ancient Near East was kind of a, 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 a stew of a wide variety, a religious stew of a wide variety of gods with a lowercase g. There was a god for this mountain and a god for the harvest and a god for this river and a god for the moon and a god for this star and a god for the sun and a god for this. And you get a god and you get a god and you get a god. Um, people didn't have relationships with these gods. They tried to appease them so that things would go well for them that the harvest would be good or there'd be success in the hunt or that water would be pure and all these kinds of things. So into this kind of stew of religious stuff, the God of the Bible, the Hebrew God, says, no, you are living the wrong story. Let me tell you the real story. God created the heavens and the earth. And we must note that the, the scriptures are not a scientific textbook. This isn't a, a, a scientific analysis of how God did all these things. This is a poem. It's a story describing how this God did these things. So here at the beginning of scriptures, God makes a profound statement. There's God, and then there's everything else. And it's a radically countercultural statement. There's God, and then there's everything else. The ancient Near Eastern creation myths pictured these lesser deities as battling with the chaos and, and, and the waters and, and the destruction to bring creation out of it. In the Hebrew Bible, God says, no, I created everything. I am God, and then there's everything else. A great line is drawn. There's God who is holy, who is other, who is all-powerful, who's all-knowing. This God who is everything speaks everything else into being. Nothing crosses that line between God and everything else. God broods over the waters calmly like a mama bird on her nest. And as Genesis continues, we see that effortlessly through the vapor of his breath, he speaks all these things into being. Nothing crosses this line. God is creator. God is supreme. Everything else is creation. Everything else is subservient. And that's just a statement here at the beginning of the scriptures. It's a filter through which to understand reality. If we don't apply this filter that God is the creator, that God is the one who has ownership over everything, then we miss some of the truth about the reality we're living in. God calls us to see reality through his lens, that he created all things. God is the owner. God has rights to all that exists. And without that filter of reality, we can easily miss important information about the nature of creation, about the nature of wisdom and how everything works. So that's one 
filter I want you guys to hold on to, that God is creator, God has ownership, God is supreme over everything, and creation is subservient. So something else that's really cool, this, uh, we move into this, uh, it provides more insight into, into Genesis 1, this creative event, through Proverbs chapter 8. And in chapter 8 of Proverbs, wisdom is portrayed, personified as a woman, a woman calling out for hearers, a woman calling out for followers, for those who will listen to her voice and walk in her ways and, and to walk in wisdom and to walk in the truth and to walk in the light. And this woman personified in chapter 8 is a contrast to Proverbs chapter 7 where there's kind of a strange woman, a wicked woman who invites people into, into sin and invites we, uh, people into destruction. And so Lady Wisdom in chapter 8 is this contrast to chapter 7. Chapter 8 is, of Proverbs is a profound statement on the abundance of God. Now God has lavish gifts for his children, for those who walk in his wisdom. And that's a great kind of aside question to ponder. Do you have a theology of the lavishness of the abundance of God, or do you have a theology of scarcity? Do you believe that there's plenty enough for everybody to go around, that God's grace is for everyone, that we should be open and lavish with God's gifts? Or do we want to hoard things and protect things because we don't believe that good things are coming our way? That is a message for another day, but it's worth pondering. So Lady Wisdom is personified here in the beginning, uh, here in uh, chapter 8. And uh, this is powerful imagery, so I want to read this together. Uh, I'll, I'll read that loud. You can follow along. But this is how Lady Wisdom is personified, and, and it looks through Lady Wisdom. It's Lady Wisdom looking at the Genesis event. So before the mountains were formed, before the hills, I was born. Before he had made the earth and fields and the first handfuls of soil, I was there when he established the heavens, when he drew the horizon on the oceans. I was there when he set the clouds above, when he established springs deep in the earth. I was there when he set the limits of the sea so they would not spread beyond their boundaries. And when he marked off the earth's foundations, I was the architect at his side. I was his constant delight, rejoicing always in his presence. And how happy I was with the world he created. How I rejoiced with the human family. And so, my children, listen to me, for all who follow my ways are joyful. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. Joyful are those who listen to me, watching for me daily at my gates, waiting for me outside my home. For whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But those who miss me injure themselves. All who hate me love death. It's powerful imagery of insight into the story of God. And the first thing that I want us to notice here is that Lady Wisdom was there at the beginning of God's work of his way. There's another way to translate this Hebrew word beginning. And it's this idea of a way or a path or a method of doing things. And so the Lord uh, at the beginning has this way of wisdom. The way of the Lord, the beginning of, of, of God's path is the way of wisdom. The collectivity of all God's actions, the pattern of who he is, his, all of his behavior is that of wisdom. And also, quick note, that this, the way this verse speaks of wisdom being present at the beginning, there are several ways to consider that as well. The, the idea of the Lord formed me from the beginning, you could also translate it as possessed, or the Lord brought me forth. It could even mean uh, proceeded from. And so scholars have debated and wondered over the years if this is an example of the Trinitarian nature of God, if Lady Wisdom here is actually 
kind of a personification of the Holy Spirit. And again, it's a mystery worth wrestling with, but we'll have to have another sermon or another series on the Trinity at another time. So let's swirl these ideas together. In the beginning, we have Genesis, which is this profoundly countercultural statement about the nature of reality, that God is the creator, that everything else is on the other side of the creation line. God is the owner. God is majestic. God is over it all. He is holy. He is other. He's different. He's separate from creation. God is categorically different. And then in Proverbs, we understand that this otherness, this God who is separate, created all that there is in wisdom. That wisdom is this thing we're called to walk in. This wisdom is, comes from this magnificently other being, and this wisdom calls out for us to follow in the way of wisdom. And so that leaves us with a very important question. It's how? How do we live into that wisdom? How do we access this wisdom? The way into wisdom is through a very simple but a crucial filter or lens. We need a filter through which to understand this wisdom. The way into wisdom is through this filter. And this filter might not sound very great at first. You might chafe against it a little bit internally. But this filter is essential for us to understand and live into the true wisdom of God. So to get to Proverbs 8, you have to go through Proverbs chapter 1. And in verse 7, it says this. Fear of the Lord is the foundation or beginning of true knowledge. Fear of the Lord is the foundation or the beginning of true knowledge. This verse calls us to account. What do we really think about who God is, about who the Lord is? How do we understand the nature and reality of God? Until we wrestle through that, our wisdom, our knowledge will be somewhat short-sighted. So I want you to sit with this word fear for a moment. Don't be quick, too quick to wave it off and redefine fear to, be, to mean something simply more palatable to you. Let the word fear be the word fear for a moment. And let the words of Scripture be a bit of a spotlight into your heart and your soul. What does it do to you to consider that fear of the Lord is a filter through which we're called to apply to our world to gather knowledge and understanding? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In the same way that Genesis 1, 1, and 2 was a radically countercultural statement, this is also a radically countercultural statement. The statement fully separates this idea of biblical wisdom from the rest of the wisdom of the ancient Near East. There are a lot of writings in the ancient Near East of Proverbs and wisdom literature, as it's called. The Egyptians had wisdom literature, and the Mesopotamians had wisdom literature. And some scholars try to simply say the, the Hebrews copped that wisdom literature and kind of just turned it a little bit uh, for their own purposes. But the way this is phrased is categorically different than the rest of the wisdom literature of the ancient Near East. Other ancient Near Eastern texts would have said that wisdom, that the fear of the gods, like fearing gods was an important part of wisdom, like it's kind of an aspect of wisdom, but it's not the everything to follow the filter through which we should see everything it's a very different approach the the hebrews the hebrew scriptures say fear of the lord is the beginning it's the portal it's the filter through which we must understand the rest of reality that separates it from the rest of the ancient wisdom literature it's a real it's a departure from how the rest of the ancient near east would have thought about wisdom and knowledge so what does it mean to fear the lord there are at least kind of two ideas or concepts 
to think about with fear. So the first is this expectation of evil. Like we fear things because we expect bad things are going to happen. And with God, God is so big and so vast and so strong, we can't help but almost be afraid of that much power, to be afraid that bad things will come to us from that much power and that much glory. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with the concept of someone that big, that strong, that powerful. We struggle not to expect evil. But I want to call us to not jump too quickly to this expectation of evil from God. We may not always understand his ways. We may not even like what happens to us, and things can be difficult, and we don't understand a lot of what goes on. We need to avoid this expectation of evil from God. Kind of the famous words from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, where Mr. Beaver says, he is not safe, but he's good. So it brings us to the second concept or understanding of fear, and that is this awareness of otherness. So if we're rejecting the expectation of evil, I want us to live in this kind of awareness of otherness. What do we do in the presence of someone so vast and strong and big and different than us? It's more than simple reverence. I want you to call in mind all that stuff from Genesis 1, that there's this God who spoke everything into being. Fear of the Lord is understanding that everything that there is, all that you see, all that happens is part of his story. He is the creator. He is the owner. He is separate. He is different. He is holy. He is other. And therefore, we are his creation. And that means he has claim over our lives. He has an ownership stake over us. All that we're encountering, all that we're interacting with, all that we're experiencing, we are stewards of this creation. In our lives and our experiences in it, we are not the owners. God is the owner of all things. And the fear of the Lord, a respect, and an honoring, a reverence, a, a recognition of that otherness is that fear of the Lord. It's the filter through which we understand reality. And without that filter, we're just going to be dealing with some simple human wisdom, some pithy statements, some life hacks uh, to post on top of pretty pictures and put on our Instagram feed. Fear of the Lord is the gateway to really understanding the true nature of reality, and that is that God is the creator and owner, and that our call is to live into his wisdom through recognition of his ownership. Fear of the Lord is rooted in his otherness, his difference from us. And there's this really great example of this in the Gospels in the New Testament. The Gospels are the stories of the life of Jesus, kind of four uh, angles looking at the life of Jesus. And in the book of Luke, there's this great story where Simon Peter, who eventually becomes one of Jesus' great disciples and friends, Simon Peter has this encounter with Jesus. So we're going to read through this, and I'll point a couple of things out as we go. This is Luke 5, 1. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, Simon Peter, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. So the scene is, crowds. there's a lot of crowds on the shore, and it's kind of a... Uh, pressing in on Jesus. So Jesus uses this boat to create something of a stage to be able to address the people. So he asks Simon Peter, this boat owner, hey, I'm going to get in this boat. Let's create a stage. Let's create a space. Simon Peter's in the boat making sure it doesn't drift away. 
and he addresses the crowd and teaches the crowds. Now, the other thing to note is that these guys had been on the shore washing their nets, and that means that they were at the end of their work day. They'd been out all night. They had tried to catch fish. They were doing their job as fishermen. The people who lived on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, that's where they made their living. And these guys had been working all night, and now they're cleaning up after their work to get on with the rest of their day. So the washing of their nets means that they've done their job for the night, and things are moving on. So next, next slide. The story continues. So when he had finished speaking, so it's interesting, they don't reference what Jesus said. This story is more about Jesus' encounter with Simon, not about necessarily what he was teaching. He said to Simon Peter, now go out where it is deeper and let your nets down to catch some fish. So Jesus, the carpenter, is now telling the fisherman how to do his job. Simon doesn't take kindly to this. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. So that word master is a very generic word for kind of boss. So Simon Peter, you, it, there's almost some sarcasm here, like, okay, boss. You say, just let the nets down. We're fishermen. We do this for a living. We know our jobs. We worked all night. We didn't catch anything. But since you say so, because you're the all-knowing carpenter, fisher guy, we'll let down the nets again. So they do. He does. He lets down the nets again. Next slide. So at this time, and their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. So note that that word Lord is a vastly different word than the word master that he used previously. And we'll talk about that in a second. The story continues. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Simon Peter has an experience of the otherness of God, and it radically alters him. He goes from calling him boss or supervisor Chief, okay, chief. He goes from calling him a name like that to calling him Lord. And this word Lord is a heavy word. It means to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he has the power of deciding, the possessor and disposer of a thing, the owner, one who has control of the person, the master. So Lord has all the connotation of that Genesis 1, 1, and 2 stuff. All that connotation of ownership, all that connotation of other, all that connotation of directiveness, Simon Peter recognizes that he is in the presence of someone who is different and who is other. And now Peter gets it. Peter is now seeing reality correctly through the filter of the fear of the Lord. Peter has stepped through the threshold of wisdom. And he's encountered in person the person of Jesus who is God in the flesh and his fear of the Lord is the beginning of his wisdom, of his really understanding the nature of reality. And he goes on to become a disciple of Jesus and through his work, we're here today. Peter becomes a leader in this church because he got reality correctly. And note what's on the other side of Peter's realization. Peter has an experience of Jesus' otherness 
And then on the other side of that realization, Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. And that word afraid is the idea of like a deer bolting away when it's scared. Jesus is saying, don't bolt. Don't bail out. Don't freak out and run away from me. Stay here. Stay in the presence of my otherness. Stay with it. Don't miss out on what's here. By beginning with the fear of the Lord, Simon Peter is then invited to not run away from it. Jesus says, don't run away. By getting the first thing correct, Peter is invited into the deep reality and the deep mystery of the joy and love in a relationship with Jesus. He's invited into the story of God that God is telling and is now telling through the person of Jesus as the word of God. Fearing the Lord as, a, as the beginning of wisdom is an invitation to see Jesus for who he really is. His otherness isn't something to run away from. It's something to run into. The call to fear the Lord is an invitation to viewing the world through a different filter, through the filter of God's ownership, his glory, and his otherness, yes, but also in the person of Jesus and his intimacy and his love for us. Seeing God for who he really is and the reality for what it really is is seeing reality as a mysterious and beautiful playground of community and of intimacy and of grace. So I want to invite the band forward as we kind of wrap up with some questions to ponder and consider. And I want to ask you, what filter are you applying to how you see the world? What filter are you applying to how you see reality? Are you stuck seeing God like Peter did initially as just a boss or a supervisor who's distant and away from me and kind of tells me what to do, but I don't really like what he tells me what to do? Are you stuck in a definition of fear as expectation of evil from God? Do you expect bad things to happen to you from God? I want to ask us to move into fear, to move through fear, to see the person of Jesus on the other side, calling us to himself, calling us to relationship, calling us beyond running away, calling us to himself. Let's pray to close. God, we calm and quiet our souls for just a moment before your holiness, before your otherness, before your majesty, your power. We recognize that you are other, that you are God, that you are holy. In the exact same moment, God, we recognize that you've sent Jesus to show us what you're really like. And we see love and we see grace we see beauty and we see joy in the person of Jesus. Help us not to bolt. Help us not to run away. Help us to stay here, to stay in your presence, and to see and to find at last that you're good. Amen.